Uh, with that in mind, let me get you to uh, open your Bible to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, verse 18 through 32. We're continuing our sermon series through this book. Last week we had talked about chapter 1, verses 16 through 17. Tonight is going to be like something that I experienced when I was playing football. One of the things we used to do for rehab is that we used to get into the cold tub for a little while and then... After the cold tub, we'd immediately go to the hot tub. The cold tub is no bueno. Uh, not fun at all. The hot tub's amazing. But part of recovering, it was necessary for us to spend time in the cold tub and in the hot tub. Tonight is going to be kind of like that. The gospel is good news actually when we first get a little uncomfortable. And actually, maybe tonight get very uncomfortable. But let me tell you this. Hold on. As it were, the hot tub's coming. Just keep listening. You might be tempted to write me off based on just what's read in the text or what I say. All I'm going to do is give you God's word and keep listening for the good news. Romans 1, 18 to 32. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse for although they knew God they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him but they became futile in their thinking and foolish hearts were darkened claiming to be wise they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. <clears throat> they were... Filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, Though they know God's righteous decree, 
that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This is the word of the Lord. Holy Father, I'm sure that is in many ways hard to say when we read a text like that to say thanks be to God, but when we understand what you're doing, we will give thanks. Father, we are asking that you would afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. That you would preach your law to us and yet also preach your gospel. Father, maybe there are many of us today who are disturbed about what was happening on campus or maybe, maybe we're disturbed because of what's been happening in our own heart. Would you speak your word to us and would we know that it is you indeed speaking to us because when your word is opened, you're speaking. Father, we know that you give us all things in order to drive us to salvation that is in Jesus. And so would you do that tonight? And would you do do so even through just the normal preaching of the word? And we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. What what would you feel like if you went to the emergency room three separate times for the same issue and you never got a good diagnosis? And you knew actually that things were going to get worse and worse and worse and worse. You knew there was a problem, but no matter which hospital you went to, they wouldn't give you a good diagnosis. Was actually what happened to me back in 2021 during the summer when I was uh, going through Guillain-Barre syndrome. As my body was breaking down, I was losing the ability to run, to jump, to then write, to walk upstairs, to hardly being able to get out of bed. And I would go to these emergency rooms and they would have no clue what was going on. And I knew something's not right. And the relief that came over me when I finally went just one block over to this doctor who within five minutes looked at me and said, dude, you have double dropped foot. That's Guillain-Barre. And it was an amazing relief to actually have someone give a diagnosis where then he had to explain to me what it was because I had no clue what it was. But once he explained to me what it was, It was a relief, but his diagnosis did not heal me. I had to still go through the treatment. But if he did not give me a right diagnosis, then you can see what the results, the damaging results would have been, right? As one doctor says, as any doctor can tell you, the most crucial step toward healing is having the right diagnosis. If the disease is precisely identified, a good resolution is far more likely. Conversely, a bad diagnosis usually means a bad outcome, no matter how skilled the physician might be. But let me ask you a question. Are you afraid of the right diagnosis for your life? Are you afraid of some portions of Scripture that show you what your heart really is like? 
Maybe you're not trusting the Bible's diagnosis, but you're trusting some other diagnosis. But let me ask you a question. Can you really trust that? And I wonder if we're staying away from this diagnosis because we're scared of what it will actually mean. Well, friends, I want to tell you this. You can't be healed until you are rightly diagnosed with the disease. If this is true, we need to know what the right diagnosis is. Go to verse 18. What is the diagnosis of our life? What is the problem with our lives? For the wrath of God is revealed against, or excuse me, from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. The problem here in verse 18 is Paul is saying that it is the wrath of God. But what is the wrath of God? It's not a popular topic. It's typically not the topic you think about right before bed. But it is necessary because it is who God is. See, God is infinite and unchangeable. God is not an emotional God who just has these outbursts or kind of like the flower petal, the old school cartoon, which someone would hold a flower and they would say, he loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. That's not how God treats us. But God's wrath is his settled, just, and right anger for sin and wickedness. You see, love and anger are actually two sides of the same coin. You would call me a bad father if someone hurt Valerie and I sat there and did nothing. But it would be a out of love for my daughter that I would get angry at someone who would hurt her, right? Well, the same is true of God. God is holy. God is loving. He is good. And since he is holy and loving and good, he gets angry at what is unholy and unloving and evil. The problem with that is that God is good and we're not. But why is God's wrath revealed? Why is it revealed from heaven? Well, look at what it is. It's revealed from heaven against these two things and in this order. Ungodliness and unrighteousness. What is ungodliness? Ungodliness is actually idolatry. We've talked about this a little bit. <clears throat> idolatry actually... Uh, uh, let me really encourage you to keep your hand out because actually if you open it up on the inside, I kind of have a kind of some notes there about what is idolatry. How can you how can you notice your idols and how can you um, learn to kind of diagnose what's happening there? Idolatry is a very important part of the Christian life because we need to see that we all struggle with idols. Idols are anything we replace God with. It's anything we worship more than God. It's anything that we look to for our identity or our purpose or our highest love other than God. You see, actually, when Paul talks about ungodliness and unrighteousness, ungodliness is actually more focused vertically and unrighteousness is more focused horizontally. Horizontally. 
You see, when we fail to give God the honor due to his name, we will give it to someone else. We are people and beings who worship. The question is, what will we worship? St. Augustine, many years ago, said this. He's a prayer speaking to God. He says, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. You see, idolatry is trying to find our rest in anything other than God, but it only leaves us restless. But then there is also unrighteousness. Unrighteousness means immorality. It is the horizontal ways in which we sin against others. And see, that's a proper order there. Because whenever we replace God with an idol, it inevitably messes up our relationships with other people. That's why we can never say that something is not a big deal because it doesn't affect other people. All sin affects other people. But even more importantly, all sin is seeking to destroy and mar the glory of God. So Paul is saying that actually part of the diagnosis is that we are ungodly and unrighteous. We have idolatry and immorality. Now you might not think that that's that big of a deal. I was talking to my dad earlier today and we were talking about how a couple years ago he and I were fishing down in the Gulf of Mexico and we had caught a fish and it was called a, uh, I wish I had Evan Price in here, it'd be so helpful. It was called a, uh, a gaff top sail catfish. Uh, it was probably around nine to 10 pounds. It wasn't a huge fish, but we were like, this is pretty cool. And we just threw it back. Do you want to know what's interesting? We didn't know what type of fish it was. So we wanted to go look it up. And when we looked it up, we realized, oh my goodness, we think we just caught a state record. But there it goes. You see, we didn't think it was a big deal until we looked it up. You might not think your idolatry and immorality is a big deal until God's word, as it were, looks you up. But Paul says this. Look at the next phrase in verse 18. Who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. See, this is what happens whenever we live in unrighteousness. Whenever we live in sin, sin deadens the heart. Sin is never an effectless thing. Sin is powerful and it affects us. It deadens our hearts. You see, what we try to do whenever we try to ignore God and replace God with our idols, it's kind of like this whenever... Maybe in your apartment, your uh, downstairs neighbor is playing music late at night and you're trying to go to sleep. And so what you do is you turn on your sound machine even louder. And even as loud as you try to turn on your sound machine, it doesn't turn off their music. You see, you might be trying to run away from God as long and as far as you can, but it does not turn off the fact that he is God and he will judge us.
But what truth is it that we suppress? Look at verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. See, the truth, (coughs) the truth that we suppress is the fact that God exists. Every single person throughout all of human history knows that God exists. There is actually no true thing as an atheist. Even though you might try to truly ignore God or run away from God, but the way that we are made, we know that as we witness creation and the longings within our heart, we know that there is a God. We see the structure and order of the universe that certainly has us asking questions that this has got to be more than just a big bang. The joy of relationships that we might experience with other people, the longing for something out there. Isn't this actually part of the idea of why we're so excited about maybe there's aliens out there? Because we know there's something out there. The searching for a purpose or seeing the glories of a mountain or the beauties of a sunset at the beach. We see these things and we know that this is not random. God has shown us his eternal power and we even see that in creation by seeing how beautiful this earth is. Seeing how he holds it up, seeing how he provides for us. We see how he has revealed to us his divine nature. We see how wise he is. We realize that this God, he must be good because we can taste, we can see color. We see how loving he is. We see that he is the sovereign. We don't know everything about God from creation, but we do know some of it. And we see it in the created things. This is why Psalm 8 verses 3 through 4 says this. When I look at your heavens, and I would encourage you to, when you go outside tonight to do this, the psalmist says, the work of his heavens is the work of his fingers. The moon and the stars which you have set in place, and in light of all that, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? We know God exists. But how do we respond To God. Well, you see, look at verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. You see, first, that we did not honor him as God. We did not positively acknowledge him. We did not recognize him for who he is. We did not esteem him. We did not fear him for who he is. And inevitably, when we don't honor God as God, as I mentioned earlier, we we will honor something else. That honor just does not go away. See, we're often like the minions. The beginning of the minion movie, the narrator says this, they're all different, but they all share the same goal, to serve the most despicable master they could find. Keeping their master happy was the reason for the tribe's very existence. And my friends, we are all looking for a master. 
Even as Loki says in the first Avengers movie, we were all meant to kneel. The question is, what will we kneel to? But we don't kneel to God. We don't honor God and we don't give thanks to him. We don't express our gratitude and appreciation that he has provided for us. Rather, what we do is this. We say, this is my life. And I will live how I want. We act like we make our own way, that we keep ourselves alive. But have you thought about your breath? I think we've used this illustration before, but you have those moments where you breathe and you're thinking about your breathing and then you're thinking, what happens if I forget to breathe? Is it just going to stop? Let me ask you something. Who's giving you breath every moment of your life? But rather, instead of honoring God as God and instead of giving thanks to him, we become a contradiction. That's how it's explained here. We become futile in our thinking and foolish in our hearts. You see, when it says that we become futile in our thinking, it means we become futile in our logic and our reasoning. This is often why whenever we explain what Scripture is saying, we might give arguments for the resurrection or, or proofs for the existence of God. And someone might say, well, I don't believe. Well, of course they can't believe. Because it takes a supernatural awakening from God to see the truth of the gospel. Our very reasoning, our very logic without God's grace is backwards. What's crazy about this is that we really start to believe ourselves that our sinful lifestyles are actually good for us. And so we say, I'll look at pornography a little bit more tonight. Or I'll take just a little bit of a closer step to sex. We won't go the whole way, but just a little bit. I think what's interesting is that we say that Today, we say that all truth is relative. You have your truth and you have your truth. But then, isn't it interesting how we get in an outrage whenever there's what we think an unjust court ruling? Here's the question. If we say that your truth is your truth and your truth is your truth, then who are we to ever look at Hitler and say you're wrong? Because if we really believe that if everyone just lives out their truth, then by that logic, we look at Hitler and say, he's just living out his truth. Good luck with that. It says that our foolish hearts are darkened. It means our desires are warped. They turn in on themselves. That's what that text means. In the autumn of 1973, listen to this. In Sweden, there was a shock as a bank robber by a guy by the name of Jan Erik Olsen. He planned a heist of a bank in Stockholm. And he took four people hostage, three women and one man. And he asked them, or excuse me, he asked the police to release his prison mate, a guy named Clark Olofsson. For six days... The hostages were forced to stay in the bank vault while the police unsuccessfully attempted to end the escalating crisis. But on day four, something even more remarkable happened. 
One of the hostages, a 23-year-old woman, phoned the Swedish prime minister and told him she was scared the police were going to harm them and asked if they could be allowed to escape with the robbers. She said this, Clark, who is one of the robbers, I fully trust Clark and Jan Eric Olson. I am not desperate. They haven't done a thing to us. On the contrary, they have been very nice. But you know, what I'm really scared of is that the police will attack us and cause us to die. Then things got even more interesting because they even began to embrace the convicts and to kiss them and shake their hands. And one of them yelled out, don't hurt them. They didn't harm us. Clark, talking to the robber, I will see you again. What they would, these hostages, they even went on to raise money for their captors. And this, my friends, is how we came up with the term the Stockholm Syndrome. But my friends, that's exactly what we do with our idols. Our idols are out to destroy us. Sin is out to be your master. But we look at our sin and we say... You're my friend. See, we become foolish in our hearts. Our desires are warped. But we must remember this, brothers and sisters. We can't be healed until you rightly diagnose the disease. The results of this we see in verse 22. Claiming to be wise, they become fools. It is interesting that here's what sin does. Sin reverses how God has made us. We were made for God, but now we're obsessed with ourselves. We were made to love others, but now we will look down on others and treat others harshly so that we can get what we want. <clears throat> Why is this happening? Verse 23, because we've exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. You can't be healed until you rightly diagnose the disease. And like every deadly disease, if you don't treat it, it has damaging results. So that's why we need to ask the question, what are the damaging results if not treated? Look at verse 24. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. What does God do in response to our idolatry? We actually see three times in verse 24, verse 26, and verse 28. It says God gave them up. This is what God's wrath is. Whenever we are fixed in our sin, we say no to God. We say, I will have my way. Eventually what God does is that he actually, as it were, he gives us a portion of the Lord's prayer. In the Lord's prayer, we say your will be done. And actually God's wrath is looking at us in our sinful ways. And he says, your will be done. It's like letting a child eat whatever they want, knowing that they're going to get very sick. See, actually, God's wrath is not his fatherly discipline. 
It's not like Jonah when Jonah runs away and God pursues after him even with a storm. God's wrath would have been letting Jonah go and saying, your will be done. One of the worst things God can do for us is to give us every desire of our heart. See, actually, God graciously keeps us from being as sinful as we could be. But it says in verse 24 that he gave them up to the lust of their hearts, to impurity. When it says lust, that is an over-desire. It's like my over-desire to have something sweet before bed. I don't care if it's a waffle, if it's an insomnia cookie, or if it's bluebell cookie two-step. But I'm gluten-free, so I can't do that anymore. It's a shame. But it's that craving. You long for it. And you won't be satisfied until you have it. That's what lust is. And here's one of the ways in which we see what happens to an idolatrous person. They dishonor their body. This is referring to sexual sin. You see, this is actually what... We need to remember about Scripture. Scripture gives a very important connection between worship and sex and sexuality. Why is that? God made you and me as physical beings. We are made up of body and soul. And with our bodies, God made us sexual beings. And so with all of our life, including our sexuality, we are meant to listen to God and to obey God and to orient our life towards God. And here's what we do when we sin sexually. We look at God and we say, no. And we look at ourselves and we say, yes. And we say, I will sleep or do what I want with my body, with whoever I want, whenever I want. Sexual sin is one of the ways in which we most deaden our hearts to worship. To be clear, to be clear, sexual sin is not the unforgivable sin. And don't you ever let someone tell you that. But it is a serious sin. It's desiring self over God. And that's one of the ways in which he gives us over. He just lets us run wild in the hookup culture. We also see, and then we'll talk about that next, we see that one of the ways in which God has also given people up is to things like homosexuality. And we also see, thirdly, that God gives people up to a debased mind. You see that in verse 28. Brothers and sisters, this is a hard truth, but you need to remember that you can't be healed unless you have a right diagnosis. I know this is hard and it feels like the cold tub, but you can't be healed unless there's the right diagnosis. I want you to listen to me. When you water down sin, you water down grace. When you think sin is not that bad, then your Savior is not that good. When you sacrifice being convicted of sin, you sacrifice knowing the love and mercy that is in Jesus Christ for sinners. That's why we must proclaim what Scripture proclaims. But what is the problem with homosexuality? Look at verse 26. I know this is a very sensitive topic and I want to talk about it pastorally. 
And what I want to do is I'm going to explain the words of what Scripture is saying here. I know some of you, you might struggle with this, but please, just I know it's hard. Keep listening. Because there is good news coming. But there is a problem with homosexuality. Here's what we do not ever do as Christians. We never treat someone harshly because they have a sin that we don't struggle with. Do you hear me? We do not treat someone harshly just because they're in the LGBTQ community. We speak the truth. But we do so in a loving, gracious, wise, timely, patient way. We love them as Jesus would love them. And Jesus will speak the truth because, my friends, there's no such thing as love without truth. That's hypocrisy. But there's no such thing as truth without love because that is brutality. You see, it's not like what happened on campus today. But how the Bible does speak is that it describes it as dishonorable passions. You see that in verse 26. It's emphasizing, Paul is, <laughs> by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it's emphasizing the shameful and disgraceful nature of the sin. You see, this is what one thing we need to remember from Scripture is that sometimes we actually do need to listen to our shame. Oftentimes what we're doing today is that if there's any shame or anxiety or depression, we merely chalk it up to mental health when maybe it is actually in that that God is trying to tell us something. Now, don't hear me right off mental health. I'm not saying that. But there are some circumstances, and that's why you need someone to speak into your life here, is that maybe you are in a circumstance where you are extremely anxious or in despair because there's sin that you keep trying to ignore rather than bringing it to Jesus. Paul calls this unnatural relations that are contrary to nature. Scripture is very clear here that homosexuality and the, the things of the LGBTQ community, they are not natural. They're contrary to nature. They're not in accordance with how God has made us. It literally means it's backwards. Homosexuality and anything within the LGBTQ community, it is a violation of God's created order. Now, some people might want to argue, well, Paul doesn't know what we're talking about today. Let me tell you, in all my research on this, if someone knows about this, it is Paul, and especially in the Roman Empire. That these words mean what they mean in our translation, and he knows exactly what he's talking about. It is what, he, what we're experiencing today. And this is why, brothers and sisters, this is why people are tempted, or are tempted to be ashamed of the gospel. That's the reality. It's not easy to stand up here and proclaim this. I understand that there might be people who might not ever want to come back. But the best thing that God can give you is a right diagnosis so that you can find right healing. <clears throat> One author says the existence of homosexual practice in a culture is a sign that the culture as a whole has been worshiping idols and that its God-given male and female order is being fractured as a result. How do we see it today? 
is he actually, interestingly today, or we've it's kind of opened up into this current debate and you have people where it's called side A and then side B. Side A is the thinking that, well, the Bible's wrong about homosexuality or anything in the LGBTQ idea. And it's therefore not a problem. So therefore, even I can live out this lifestyle with no regret, whether as an unbeliever, but then also I can still live out this lifestyle and still be a Christian. That's side A. Side B is different. Side B says that you know that the practice of homosexuality is wrong, but it's okay to identify yourself as a same-sex attracted person. It's only wrong if you live out the desire, but the desire itself isn't wrong. You just don't want to live it out. You see, actually what the Bible teaches very clearly in the Sermon on the Mount is that Jesus says lust in your heart, even before you live it out, is sin. The desire is sin, whether you live it out or not. You see, what's the problem with the identity language? You see, could you imagine using this logic with something like racism? Imagine this. Imagine if I said, you know, I'm a racist Christian. Yes, you should respond that way because it sounds ridiculous. Or imagine this. Imagine, you know, yes, I'm a lying Christian. Yes, I'm a materialistic Christian. Yes, I'm a pornography addicted Christian. Do you see the problem with identifying yourself that way? Identity determines how you live. Identity is your worldview. How you identify yourself is how you will live. What you are saying there is at the core of your being, this is who you are. And the Bible says this, as a Christian, no, you're not. You might have a lifelong fight against the sin of same-sex attraction, but your deepest identity is in Christ. No matter how difficult it is. And that, my friends, is good news. You see, there's a big difference between saying, I am this versus saying this. I used to be that. And I still have to fight against that temptation. And I continue to have to repent of it. But my identity is in Christ. My friends, both side A and side B are unbiblical. And both don't give you any hope. You see, actually, it is Christ and his grace and mercy and love and the identity that you have in him. That no matter how long you might have gone down the road of an LGBTQ lifestyle, God's grace is more powerful. Amen. Amen. And God's grace defines you more than your sin. It is his grace, my friends. See, Romans 6 is actually all about showing how we are redefined by identity in Christ. (laughs) Paul says that homosexuality is shameless acts, that the more we go against the conscience and live that way, we champion it. And I think there is a big irony today 
And it is also very sad that there are massive amounts of people who will wave around rainbow flags not remembering what the rainbow really symbolizes. Paul says they receive in themselves the due penalty for their error. And we actually do see that actually with with any sexual sin, but we do see it here in particular too with sexual diseases, mutilated bodies, trust issues, broken hearts, callous feelings, emotional distress, and damaged identity. There's a Navy SEAL who uh, 10 years ago transitioned to be a woman. He was a Navy SEAL on SEAL Team 6 and he became a woman And recently he's been detransitioning. And here's what he says. Everything that happened to me for the last 10 years destroyed my life. I destroyed my life. You see, are there greater sins than others? Romans 3.23 says, All have fallen short of the glory of God. And Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. All sin is under God's wrath. But it is important to remember this. That all sins are not equally heinous. But some sins in themselves and by reason of further aggravation of our sin. They are more heinous in the sight of God than others. Jesus even says this in John 19.11. Talking about how someone has greater sin than another. And John will also talk about this in 1 John 5.16. That sounds really harsh. But let me ask you a question. Is it worse for me to be angry? Let's just use Valerie again. I love Valerie. Please hear me. Would it be worse of me to be angry at Valerie or just to go ahead and kill her? Because if there's no such thing as a further aggravation of sin, if there's no such thing as more heinous sin, then why not just go ahead and kill her every time I get angry? That sounds horrible. But that's the reality. This is what I'm not saying. The Bible will never say this and hear me. Don't ever listen to anyone. I don't care if they're on campus or if they stand up in this pulpit. Homosexuality is not the unforgivable sin. It's not. No sexual sin is the unforgivable sin. And don't let anyone tell you otherwise. But what we love to do is that we love to excuse our sin because we don't want to feel as bad about it. You see, actually, when we realize that there actually are more heinous expressions of sin, here's what it should actually be. It should actually humble the sinner who might think they don't have as bad of sin, or as one author puts it, they just have respectable sin. It should actually really humble you that you're going to get the same sentence as someone who has the most heinous sins like Hitler. See, ironically, here's what actually tends to happen. It is people who know that they have more heinous sin, who know their need of a savior, and people who see their sin as manageable, they're the ones who tend to be a little more fine on their own. But my friends, here's what we also need to remember about heinous sin. Is that no matter what sin someone has, there is one savior sufficient for sinners. Amen? That Jesus Christ and no one and nothing else. He is sufficient. 
He is sufficient for you no matter what sin you have hiding in the closet. He is sufficient for you no matter how long you've been running away. Jesus Christ in His grace, His mercy, His righteousness is enough for your whole life 10,000 times over and into eternity. My friends, Jesus Christ is enough to save anyone. And no one needs to dare add anything to Him. You just look at anyone you come across and you say, come to Jesus Christ because He's merciful and He can do it. That's a good Savior. You see, you can't be healed rightly unless you get the right diagnosis. <laughs> Paul ends this section saying how God also gives people over to a debased mind. You see, he's talking about a despicable mind, a mind that can't approve what is right, but it approves what is wrong. And it's interesting, throughout Paul's letters, he will often he'll rattle off the Ten Commandments. They just, they just, they just come out of them. And so he gives this list and he says, they're filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetous, malice, envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil. And don't miss this one. Disobedient to parents. Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. In other words, what Paul is saying is that whenever we worship idols rather than God, there is spiritual chaos, there is relational chaos, and there is societal chaos. I think this list should very clearly show us that we are not one nation under God, but we are one nation under idols. And in verse 32 is the kicker. Verse 32 says, not only do we do those things, even though we know that we deserve to be judged. But we give approval to others who do them. Sometimes that approval is on social media about what we post and repost. Sometimes it's the words we actually give people. Sometimes it's the recommending of TV shows. Sometimes it's in what we wear. Sometimes it's in what we do. But we promote and give approval to sin. And John Murray, the commentator on Romans, has written a really good one. He says that's the most damning part. My friends, it's not good news. But it is necessary news. Because you can't be healed unless you have a right diagnosis. John Newton, who wrote the song Amazing Grace. By the way, John Newton was someone who used to work in the slave trade. Pretty heinous sin there. He said this. The sense of the evil of sin is given to quicken our application to Christ. It is not meant to discourage us from coming to him. And if anyone knew that, John Newton knew that. Is that actually when you realize the heinousness of your sin, God is saying, come to me, I can heal you. Come to me, I can save you. You'll die on your own. But I'll give you life. As another doctor said, diagnosis is not the end, but the beginning of practice. You see, the answer to this is not, well, it doesn't matter. I could just live however I want because my life is just messed up anyway, so I might as well keep doing it. That's not the answer. But the answer is also not this. It's not go back and fix your past, nor is it this. You've got to really earn it going forward. It's not that. 
But rather, the answer comes in chapter 4. Be like Abraham. It's interesting in Joshua 24, 22, it describes Abraham as coming from a people of idolatry. Abraham used to worship idols. But then he looked to God and he believed and he was justified. Amen. He looked to God to fulfill his promises. And brothers, sisters, that's what we do as idolaters. We repent of our idolatry and we look to Jesus Christ and we say, you are godly, you are righteous, and I'm not. And no matter how sinful I am, you are sufficient for me. You see, my friends, if you come to Jesus Christ, God will justify you. As it says in chapter 4, verse 5, that he justifies the ungodly, same word. You see, he justifies you, he forgives you, and he clothes you with Christ's righteousness. And because he does that, chapter 5, verse 1, it says you have peace with God. God's wrath is no longer over you because his peace is with you. Why is that? Chapter 5, verse 6, because at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. He The reason why Paul is going to list out all these horrible sins is because he's going to tell you Jesus came for those people. Do you hear me? He came for those types of people. Jesus' death and resurrection, it overwhelms the penalty of sin and the power of sin. And that's why we see in chapter 6 that God will transform you. In union with Christ, over time in your life, you learn to give yourself to him more and more and more and not to your sin. And he will transform you. Chapter 7 will say, but you're going to (laughs) struggle. You're still going to need to fight. You're still going to sin. But chapter 8 says this. No matter how bad it gets. No matter how sinful you are, there is no more condemnation in Jesus Christ. Amen? I'm preaching too long. Y'all need to go. Here's what I want to say. When I got the IVIG treatment for Guillain-Barre, what happened in that was that it reversed the disease. But it's taken me two years to fully recover. But my friends, when you look to Jesus Christ and you believe, he will reverse the disease of sin in you, though it might take a long time. But he can do it. And honestly, I think it was worth it preaching this long because not a lot of people talk about this and especially don't talk about it in that way. So I love you. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Let's pray. Father, have mercy on us. And in our sin and in our misery, send your son to be the sufficient savior for us and apply his work to our heart. And may we respond in grace and mercy. We ask all this, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen.